I'm interested to understand from you what you think the contribution of the COP series can continue to be, because we are seeing this shift. If you compare it back to Paris through to now, you know, it's definitely a more kind of commercial slash PR slash messaging environment than it probably was, you know, a decade ago. Can it still have that positive influence that we need? The UNFCCC and the COPs are actually very important for our collective fight against climate change. The Paris framework has stood the test of time. And what it says is even in that sort of multilateral framework where every single member has veto power in some sense, there can be innovations in how you design agreements that can make a huge difference for our trajectory on climate change. I think the other part that is really important for us to all keep in mind is that for many of us who do this on a day in, day out basis, you know, climate is something we follow all the time. Most of the world does not. And if we didn't have a COP where two weeks where all the major media in the world is focused on climate change, we would be left with nothing really to focus the world's attention on this most existential of all problems. And thank God that the COP almost always provides that. And I think that's really important. Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus, which makes me all the more excited to welcome my guest today, Anand Gopal, who is Executive Director of Policy Research from Energy Innovation. And Anand is going to be, I guess, giving some perspectives on how we can prepare mentally for COP29, what we could expect to see and hear there, and, and some other thoughts on industrial decarbonization. Uh, and I think what's interesting to note about this is that Anand's background is in policy research and specifically around leading research and modeling teams which support policy design. So we've really got a policy brain here on the podcast, which is a, a great kickoff, I think, for, for how we start planning for COP29. So Anand, why don't you pick it up from there with that classic question that I like to start with, which is, how have you arrived at this point in time, uh, both personally and professionally? And then we'll drive on into what you're expecting to see out of COP. Thank you, Alex. It's wonderful to be on. Thank you. Also, a big admirer of all your work and focus on the industrial sector, which is uh, an important source of emissions and unfortunately quite neglected. So we are big fans of your work here at Energy Innovation. I um, grew up in southern India. Uh, and in the city of Chennai, which has 8 million residents, still growing. It's on the, um, one of the most vulnerable parts of the coast in the southeast part of India and is subject to frequent um, hurricanes, which over there are called tropical storms or cyclones. And when I was a kid, I remember hunkering down um, when I was very young for a lot of these cyclones and they would come and they would definitely be pretty violent and then they would run through the city and mostly we came through unscathed. As I became a teenager, those events that were happening pretty much every winter were getting more frequent. This is in the 90s, not even what we see today. And the city would be pretty much paralyzed after those cyclonic events. And I knew something was up. Um, I had learned about climate change in school, but after seeing some of the effects in a more vulnerable part of the world, and then even later in life doing hikes in the Himalayas and physically seeing receding glaciers, I realized that there was something fundamentally changing in our world. 
And I wanted to be part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. And so for almost all of my career since uh, being in college, I have worked on various aspects of the energy transition. And uh, I've found enormous uh, fulfilling uh, work in this area. And also, even though there's no guarantee of success, uh, it still drives me and motivates me every day for us to have the opportunity or for me to play a small role in providing a, a livable planet for our kids and grandkids. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, the drivers, the personal drivers that bring different people to this, especially, I guess, because we're so still relatively early in climate uh, careers, if you like, that one of the things that still fascinates me are the different experiences and the different backgrounds, different geographies that people are coming from. Um, you know, with the intent of, of making some change. So yeah, that's really great and helpful context. Thanks for that. Um, so energy innovation. I mean, I know a little bit about the work. I um, actually uh, talked with one of your colleagues a couple of years ago, Jeffrey, who um, was really fascinating on some of the modeling work that you're doing. So I know it's a, a non-partisan think tank, but tell us a little bit about evolution of the business. Like, what does that really mean? What types of organizations are you mostly working with? And yeah, as I say, what's the evolution of the business been up until this point? Yeah, our core client uh, who we aim to serve at Energy Innovation is any policymaker who has jurisdiction over a large amount of greenhouse gas emissions and is willing to act to reduce them. That's the bottom line. And we also make it easier on them by not expecting them to pay us. Uh, we are independently philanthropically funded in order to be able to do that. Uh, and that's a huge privilege. And over the, over the years, the nature of our work, even on policy has changed. In the very beginning, uh, we we're about a decade old. Uh, and in the very beginning, a lot of the work was very much focused on the electricity sector. How do you make sure that the renewable transition gets started? Uh, those were the days when renewable energy was more expensive than fossil fuels. And mostly the arguments were around trying to get the transition going. And that was the bulk of our work. We're now a decade on, thankfully, in terms of progress in a much, much better spot. We are now in a situation where we're, at least in the power sector, talking a lot about how do we accelerate and finish the transition to clean energy. And even more importantly, we have now significantly increased all of our work that is happening in many of these other sectors, particularly the industrial sector, which I know you're very interested in and work a lot on because we no longer believe that the transition uh, can happen for a safe climate future without addressing all sources of greenhouse gas emissions. So on the industrial side, uh, does that, I mean, but you're still focused on the policymakers rather than, for example, you know, if an industrial knocks on the door, it's not that you're going to help them with their view on policy or, or how to engage around policy. It very definitely is policy design. Is that right? Very true, yes. Very much our focus is on smart and good policy design and to work directly with policymakers as a neutral. Um, I mean, we are, we are definitely very much grounded in research and the numbers. Luckily, the research and numbers point towards very ambitious climate action and for the sake of the economy as well. And what we try to do is make sure that we speak directly to those policymakers in order to motivate them for action. 
we have many, many relationships with key industrial players in the utility sector, in the automaker sector, and in the industrial energy intensive industry sector. And we talk to them about uh, how they see barriers in the transition. We understand their perspective, but we do not represent um, their interests and nor do we take funding from them uh, because what we want to make sure is not to confuse the policymaker we talk to about where we're coming from and what our intentions are and how we are squarely focused on scaling the action on climate change. I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering the Decarb Connect podcast. Over the last few years, they've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience. And their skills and expertise mean that we get to concentrate exclusively on generating the content, the conversations that engage, inform and inspire. Okay, that's a good good level of clarity, I think, then, to dive on into COP29. So, I mean, I feel like every COP has this <laughs> six-month run-up to it where people are panicking either about the organisation, the tone, the content or something. But this year, obviously, you know, has not, not been without its uh, dramas as well in, in relation to how the kind of setup for COP has been perceived in some quarters. But still, very important meeting a lot of activity, a lot of work will be done. What, what? It, first of all, what are you hearing from either clients or some of those other kind of stakeholders and constituents that you're just talking about? What, what is it that you're hearing about this one that is of note? You know, different from previous years, or, or sort of, you know, give us a flavour of, of what's coming up for you. Yeah, with um, this COP in particular. Um, there's a lot of discontent uh, going into it. Um, I think there's a lot of that is because of the host nation and also President Sultan Al-Jaber's deep ties to oil and gas. I think he runs ADNOC, which produces millions of barrels of oil per day. And um, rightly or wrongly, the symbolism matters uh, to uh, the signals that are given to the global public and also all the people who care about climate change that unfortunately that the UAE is unlikely to take a strong stance on climate in the way that many of us who see the transition being more focused on renewables and cleaner technology, a lot more role of electrification in the global economy. Um, it's not clear that everybody is convinced that the UAE or their role as a host will align with that. So there's definitely more concern that I share about how this particular COP will unfold. Additionally, there doesn't seem to be a lot of progress on um, the two most thorny issues that keep cropping up at every COP. One of them is climate finance to the global south and how and when and uh, are countries from the global north going to meet their commitments for supporting the energy transition elsewhere. And what we've seen since Glasgow is a pretty focused effort on having a fund set up for loss and damage. Uh, unfortunately, it, that, it doesn't look like we're going to emerge from COP28 with very clear outcomes on either of those or much progress on either of those two topics. However, there are some bright spots going into this COP. One is um, most nations now seem very aligned behind a goal of trebling global renewable energy capacity by 2030. 
this was not very clear cut even a few months ago. And probably there's some credit is due to the UAE and, and uh, Mr. Al-Jaber to get all the parties together to try to align on an important target. Uh, that would mean that we are going to be looking at about 11,000 gigawatts of renewable energy installed in 2030, which is substantial and can make a huge difference in the energy transition. What that will unlikely uh, be coupled with, it won't be, unfortunately, is um, an agreement around phasing out of fossil fuels, which was uh, something that was raised and brought up um, at the last minute, struck down at COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, we are likely to see more of an emphasis on bringing on clean energy and less of an emphasis on phasing down or phasing out of fossil fuels. And that um, is sort of tackling the issue halfway. However, it is um, more than I expected even a couple of months ago. So those are two kind of really interesting points there. It's very tempting, I think, isn't it, in any debate, especially around climate, but to be honest, in any debate, to sort of want to cast someone or some entity as the baddie and someone as the goodie, you know, and the, the truth is that there is opportunity here as much as there are discussions that will prove challenging for a lot of, um, you know, climate warriors, climate advocates. But I'm I'm interested in the, the fossil fuels debate in as much as I do, to what extent do you think do you, do you think that given the progress that is being made, do we need a firm date for a fossil fuel phase out or is your sense that things could get to that goal without that having to be a mandated thing. I don't know, what's your view on that? I, I, I kind of, I have to admit to everybody that I fluctuate and it sort of depends a little bit, rather like Boris Johnson, as I'm hearing in the current, <laughs> on the last person I spoke to, but what's your, what's your view on that? <laughs> this is a great question. Our view based on the research done at Energy Innovation, also following the work of many others, we're pretty clear, I think, at this point that the global transition on key sectors, electricity, transportation, are well underway and likely to complete towards a zero carbon or close to zero carbon future. However, we are also convinced that if we don't continue to have strong policy intervention both on making sure that clean energy supply goes up all, and ensuring that um, dirty energy supply goes down, we probably won't complete those transitions in time for us to have a stable climate. So this is historically unprecedented. The transition from horse carts to combustion engines happened without much policy intervention, and it took a very long time even though combustion engines were incredibly superior to horses. EVs are not necessarily that much superior to combustion engines. They are better, uh, they're going to be cheaper, they're going to provide the customer with a better experience of a vehicle. However, if it's left to their own devices, this market transformation will probably go too slowly for climate change. And that's why it's going to be pretty important to focus as much on what happens to constraining dirtier energy sources as we as a think tank tend to focus quite a lot on how do you increase the supply of clean energy sources. 
So we we talked a little bit already then about the kind of the sense, at least certainly in the media and amongst a lot of a lot of advocacy groups that, you know, oil and gas do have a stronghold over the direction of COP this year. What's your sense of like how are other groups shaping up from what you can tell? How are, are they? Do you think there will be good discussion or or yeah? Do you think it will be muted discussion? What's what's your sense on the feel and the energy around COP going to be? The best case scenario is that oil and gas and incumbent fossil fuel industries are truly part of the transition, that they want to have it uh, be something where they can continue to play a role in the new energy future. And in one sense, having an oil and gas company and uh, the head of that being a COP president presents us with that opportunity. They could really step up and make you know, strong commitments that will take us in the direction of oil and gas playing a role in the transition. So uh, the, the main sticking point that happens a lot is that the incumbent strengths and skill sets of the fossil fuel industry, if I were to put it in a high level, is mostly being very good at digging up molecules and moving them around. The future is going to have a lot less molecules. However, it's not going to be zero we're going to need some level of hydrogen, some amount of CCS, probably even some amount of bioenergy. So as long as those molecule-based fuels that are going to be necessary uh, for a zero emission future are focused on and prioritized in the right way by oil and gas companies, I can see no other sector being better at scaling them fast. So there's always that hope. Uh, however, I will be honest, like we have seen this story play out very often. Short-term concerns almost or short-term imperatives almost always end up trumping the long-term when it comes to oil and gas behavior. And there is a very high chance that once again, we will see something that is a set of commitments that are really not addressing the core of the transition. And by what I mean here is if oil and gas companies really take their scope three emissions seriously and make commitments around transitioning those and not trying to steal market share away from direct electrification where it doesn't make sense, I think we have a huge opportunity for them to make a massive difference, particularly in the industry sector, particularly in chemicals, in aviation and shipping. Okay, well, let's let's turn our attention then to the industrials, which, as you know, you know that's the kind of the heart of everything, certainly that we do at Decarb Connect. So we talk a lot on the podcast about pathways. We talk a lot about some of the different technologies that are available. So rather than talking about that, I'm just interested in your view, your personal view, your team's view on what the kind of most current blocks as well as opportunities could be and I I guess I'm interested in this of course because of your experience from the policy background you know it's what is it that you see as being maybe types of policy or movements within global policy that are really maybe offering more opportunity than we would have thought a couple of years ago but also where are we not where are we not getting the drive that we need yeah great question I will say based on our team's research on industry, let me just say, industry is not a hard to abate sector. 
if we're judging it by the technological readiness of zero emission solutions, at least for a substantial portion of where the emissions are coming from, which is about provision of heat, and to a large extent from uh, solutions that can be solved like iron and steel production using hydrogen. However, you are correct in pointing out that the, the barrier and sometimes uh, where the hard to abate moniker is unfortunately applicable comes when it in the realm of policy progress in the industrial sector, where there is very minimal progress. Even the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which is the largest federal climate legislation that we have passed, the amount of focus and incentives and all the other provisions that really try to transition the industry sector is woefully limited compared to what we've seen for the electric power sector, transportation, and buildings. And therefore, there is what I would say is that the industry sector is where electric power was in policy solutions maybe about a decade ago. But unfortunately, we don't have the, the luxury of the same amount of time for us to catch up. And I think that if anyone who is entering climate today really wants to work where there is a massive difference to be made, uh, I would love for more and more people and talent to go into looking at reducing emissions from industry because this is um, understaffed and uh, we need a lot of innovation, particularly in the policy space. There are some bright spots, even in the policy space and industry, and I, but I think what we need to do is sort of like make sure that we really zero in on those and uh, learn lessons very fast and try to translate those to as many regions as possible. One is there is now, um, significant understanding of the role and importance of hydrogen in the transition. And there are now incentives in both Europe and the United States on the production side for hydrogen, which is something we're going to need significant amounts of. However, there is also a lot of misunderstanding about how much hydrogen we need. And what we're lacking is a set of end use policies for where hydrogen should be reserved, where it should be directed and where it should be scaled up. And what we see is an incredibly important role for it in chemicals and particularly in iron and steel and not in industrial heating where we actually see that direct electrification technologies can cover the vast amount of heat needs including that of medium and high temperature, although there may be a small role for other solutions in that space. And what we also find is the, um, the aviation and marine sectors are areas which can use a lot more attention and level of focus that we haven't seen uh, in them compared to what we've seen in road transportation. So there is the beginnings of interesting ideas uh, what we really need to see is more specific targeted incentives and standards for industrial zero emissions heating equipment. So things like electric um, thermal batteries, as well as industrial heat pumps and all of those, which we haven't seen in any geography. And at the end of the day, we have to somehow have some of these be translated into deployment in China. China is responsible for 45% of global industrial emissions. The US, where I live, is 
and uh, India is somewhere around 10%. So unless we tackle those three geographies, but starting with China, we're not going to make a whole lot of progress in actually reducing emissions. And that is something that uh, we are focused on and we encourage anyone else to also uh, try to find technological solutions in China. Yeah, I think what, what we hear, I mean, as well as the, the the need to see technology, sorry, technology scale and scale up and the kind of fin finance and investor implications of that, the, the number one thing that just seems to have been rippling around our audience in the last three to six months is just the need for the sense that whatever policy is in place is going to be in place for a while. They're both in all kind of uh, different states of Europe, in the UK, obviously in the US, there's just this sense at the moment that, you know, there's things that are coming into play, policies that are in place that people could benefit from, but how long for? And is it long enough, even in its current setup, is it enough to meet the cycles that industry talks about? Because of course, industry doesn't talk about three to five year cycles, they talk about 20 to 30 year cycles. So and that doesn't remotely fit, obviously, a, a policy a policy creator's uh, timeline. But uh, I'm sure you're, you you hear similar things as well about the rely not the reliability, the kind of dependability of um, policy and and the incentives being put on the table. Completely agree. The industry, unfortunately, and maybe they've earned this a little bit. They definitely get tainted with being quite conservative and unwilling to change. However, we also know that the margins for most industrial materials production and let's say for iron and steel or other products is quite thin and the energy costs are a significant portion of their final product. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us who are trying to find solutions for industry to meet them where they are in some ways. Um, and you're right, in a political environment that is polarized in many different regions around the world, you know, I come from the U.S., which is very highly polarized, but also everywhere else as well in Europe and in China and India, there is a chance that there will not be consistent enough backing for the transition. One option here is maybe to look at the early days of the auto transformation. Uh, in those days, a lot of the policies that were passed were done by uh, government civil servants who used existing laws on the books in the United States through the Clean Air Act to set fuel economy standards um, across the world in, in Europe and including in China and India to set similar policies like fuel efficiency standards that were fairly immune from political rollbacks um, simply because that they flew quite a ways under the radar. So perhaps in the early days of the industrial transformation, it may make sense to have a certain set of policies that are very clearly backed mostly under the political radar can start the transition, not feel like it's threatening massive change in a very short amount of time, uh, and to enable industry to start putting in zero emission equipment where possible. And we know that there are so many areas where you can actually decarbonize industry really quickly. And all that's standing in the way is either the economics of the decision or the inertia of the industrial operators' familiarity with something and wanting to do things the way they used to do it. And we have a huge opportunity here to at least start that and then take the next step after. 
Um, one of the things that's come up, obviously, in, in Europe with CBAM, and I, I believe is coming up more in the US, is also the use of trade policy. Um, what's your perspective on this? I mean, it's obviously a great, <laughs> as far as many governments concerned, they can tick quite a lot of nice popular boxes uh, around trade policy, both in terms of jobs and the sense of defending against the outsiders. There's some brilliant language right there. But what's your sense of pros and cons around that? You know, are there, are we leading to some problems by focusing on that? Or do you see it as a broadly policy, you know, positive approach? What's your sense of it? Leading with trade policy as your main tool, or perhaps in some cases your only tool, is highly risky. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that. It's a little bit like um, kind of being in your being scolded about what you shouldn't do and giving you no options on what you can do or what you should do. And this is quite risky because what it might unleash is a sort of race to the bottom in terms of trade wars and trade tariffs that actually freeze the energy transition in various regions. Because at the end of the day, industry makes the solar panels that we need for our deployment. They make the wind turbines we need and they make the batteries we need. And what we don't want to see is a situation where we have the, the false belief that um, we can sort of do a trade war set of solutions in the industry sector in order to have deep reductions in emissions. Uh, however, if it is paired with giving industry significant amounts of initially some level of incentives and then later on transitioning into performance standards for their equipment uh, based on emissions, um, then this is not a bad or destructive approach. It still comes with risks. It can still lead to a potential race to the bottom in terms of trade wars. However, it will make it more likely that industry will put in the effort to transition themselves rather than simply try to be better by a few tons relative to their competitor in another country. You know, let's not forget, our goal is to get all global industry to zero emissions, and we can do that, not just to ensure that a certain amount of emissions from Brazilian factories are like 5% less than somewhere in China. That is uh, unlikely to really help us get to where we need to go. Well, in a different policy area, we've already seen the impact that competitive international policymaking can have on the movement of tech companies, the movement of decarbonization projects to kind of grab certain sets of incentives. It, we're also already hearing that one of the possible outcomes of CBAM, for example, could be um, in a movement of, uh, of, you know, future sites nearer kind of international customers or who knows. All of which can have both a positive and negative effect on any given region, but it just it just makes you feel like the outcome of such a policy isn't necessarily the intended one. And obviously, in all policy and bluntly all human action, there is always unintended consequences. But it feels like the unintended consequence pool is bigger, bigger around uh, trade policy, perhaps, than in some other areas. I agree. The politics in a lot of the leading emitting regions is now coalesced around climate policy being equal to jobs and, and local local production of the clean energy technologies of the future. And we need to pay attention to that. Uh, I live in the U.S. and I'm solidly behind solutions that can make sure that as we solve climate change, we make we also retain the support 
of the energy transition among large swaths of the public who, unlike you and me, Alex, they don't necessarily care and wake up every day about how to reduce carbon emissions. They're concerned about other things. How do they make sure that they have enough income at the end of the month and um, getting sure that their family gets through the month okay? So it is trending in that direction. We've seen that in the U.S. We are definitely seeing that in Europe, and we are likely to see that elsewhere. And it's also true that we need to be very careful about how much we lean into that uh, way of thinking in order to solve the energy transition. Um, a classic example is China at the moment uh, dominates the world's supply of natural graphite for anodes that are needed in basically every battery that we use for EVs or for the grid. They recently put export controls on that graphite. and that is not coming in a vacuum. It's coming in an environment where basically there's sort of explicit um, saber rattling around the role of China in various ways, including their domination of clean energy supply chains. Is it good for the world to have a diversified supply of graphite for anodes? Yes. Is it good for that to happen? Is it possible for that to happen in 2024? Probably not. And so having some thought around how do we make sure that these transitions and supply chain transitions are phased in, done at the pace that industry can invest um, is very important. And like you said, most industries do respond very well to incentives around where they should locate. But moving a factory from one country to another or building a new one doesn't happen overnight. Hell, I've been trying to do a home remodel project, and that's taking nine months. So imagine how long it's going to take to build a factory. So we have to be ready and, and be very clear-eyed about the solutions we propose when it comes to things like uh, trade policy or industrial policy when it comes to climate. Uh, I'm confident we could pull it off, but I'm not confident that we won't uh, end up with some pretty serious speed bumps that set us back a little bit in that, in that path. Okay, well, into my, my kind of last, well, there's two questions really, but I'm going to, unhelpfully for you, but brilliantly for me, merge them into one, which is to try and get a feel for you from, so I started out with maybe a slightly negative sense of what COP29 might be all about, simply because that's kind of been the news story, hasn't it, the last few months, but I'm interested to understand from you what you think the contribution of the COP series can continue to be, because we are seeing this shift. If you compare it back to Paris through to now, you know, it's definitely a more kind of commercial slash PR slash messaging environment than it probably was, you know, a decade ago. Can it still have that positive influence that we need? And I part the second part of the question is how can industrials make make something of it like what should they be contributing to it what should they be trying to you know get from involvement in it to make it a useful outcome yeah i agree the unfccc and the cops are actually very important for our collective fight against climate change the paris framework has stood the test of time and going into 2015 although there was optimism that there could be a good agreement in Paris. The, the folks who developed that um, nationally determined contribution framework deserve a lot of kudos and gratitude from all the rest of us. 
And what it says is even in that sort of um, multilateral framework where every single member has veto power in some sense, there can be innovations in how you design agreements that can make a huge difference for our trajectory on climate change. So I'm always hopeful in the COP context that we can pull these things off and that one of them will come along that will really transform things for the future. And we saw that in Paris in 2015. And um, I think the other part that is really important for us to all keep in mind is that for many of us who do this on a day in, day out basis, you know, climate is something we follow all the time. Most of the world does not. And if we didn't have a COP, we're two weeks where all the major media in the world is focused on climate change and everything that's going on in that space and how each country has made progress or not, we would be left with nothing really to focus the world's attention on this most existential of all problems. And thank God that the COP almost always provides that. And I think that's really important. And it gives a voice to every single way in which the climate problem is being tackled. So there it can be a tendency for a lot of us to have preferences for one way or another. Um, I, for example, work quite heavily with policymakers and roam the halls of power to try to influence people in a positive way to act on climate. There are many folks who are way out from that, um, trying to solve or protest against new coal mine builds or new oil pipeline builds in far, far reaches of the global south in Mozambique or South Africa or elsewhere. And if we didn't have a COP, it's unlikely that all of those sides will see each other's work. And that may not always lead to a sense of agreement, but it's what it's going to do is at least lead to a sense of awareness about the various ways and how many people care about it and build some momentum and solidarity among various groups. And at the end of the day, if it wasn't for COP, the world would not know how much technological progress has been made in the last few years, in fact, one from one year to another. You know, the, uh, the joke I have is with any COP, if you tell me the outcomes and the most tractable commitments that were made, I'll tell you how far clean technology has progressed since the previous COP, right? And countries will step forward and they have made progressive commitments and made improvements. Nobody has regressed. And that's because we owe a lot of that to how much cheaper clean energy has gotten and how much cheaper clean transportation has gotten. And I also see from now on how much cheaper clean and zero emission industry will get. And so I'm always excited about uh, the coming up of a COP and filled with a little bit of dread that we will want a lot and we will get a little. And that's uh, inevitable, I think, every single time. But we will get something. There will be... I mean, yes, I think, yes. And then for the industrial specifically, is, is there a message that if you were going to give the people from industry that are going to be in Dubai a call to action, like what what would you say to them if you know if you were in their shoes, what would your kind of way of engaging with those meetings be, and and what would you be seeking to do? I think at least for oil and gas, which is definitely going to have a fairly high profile here at this COP. I would challenge all, all their leaders to think beyond the next quarter. Shell and Adnoc or Aramco or um, Exxon did not become what they were, you know, a hundred years ago by just focusing on the next quarter. They innovated for the long term. 
and they have the people power, they have the funding, the financing, and the political capital to become leaders in making and distributing the clean energy solutions that we need for the future. And if they can lean into that, as opposed to pointing out how much more combustion is required for us to have the lifestyles that we need, uh, is that would make a massive difference for how um, we can move forward on climate. For everyone else, all of the other industries that are really going to be important, no matter whether we have a zero emission future or not, we're always going to need steel, we're always going to need cement. Really being excited about leading from the front. You know, we have a Swedish company, I forget its name, that has um, made a full-scale factory that runs mostly on electric energy to make cement. Uh, we've got plenty of demonstrations of hydrogen direct reduction, iron production and steel production across the world. And all of these little shoots, turning them into like a full-on forest is going to be, uh, it's going to show the world that we really love this um, new way of doing a business and making the materials that we need to power our world. And I hope that industry can, can take that next step. Well, thank you, Anand. I um, I guess you'll be in Dubai in just a few weeks' time. Uh, wish you safe travels and also hope that, yeah, I hope that you come away with, you know, more hope than than disappointment. I'm sure you will, actually. I think that the, the secret source to climate, I think, is the next generation in the sense that we, all of us, are looking at people who want our jobs, who want that next job, and they are rooted in climate and climate, you know, beliefs. And I guess what I'm saying is, you know, even the oil and gas companies know they need to attract the brightest graduates on earth and the brightest graduates on earth are now fully part of the climate generation. So I think everyone is feeling that pull and that push to get something done. But again, thank you so much for joining us and for kind of uh, re-inspiring this next phase of the podcast. I think this has been a great kickoff to, the, to our next phase. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. At Jano Media, we recognize that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society. Whether that's video, live streams, photography or podcasts, partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage, inform and inspire. Reach out to us today.